Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, Hello, how are you? This is The Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. I'm in Los Angeles. My guest today is Lucy Corin. She has a new novel out from Grey Wolf Press. It is called The Swank Hotel. And it is the official October pick of The Nervous Breakdown Book Club. The Nervous Breakdown Book Club, uh, it's my book club. TheNervousBreakdown.com. It's my online culture magazine and literary community founded in 2006. Edited now by Joseph Grantham. It has its own monthly book club. If you want more info on that, if you want to sign up, just go to TheNervousBreakdown.com. Click on Book Club in the menu bar. You get a book delivered to your door every month, and I interview the authors on this program. So, Lucy Corn is my guest. Her other books include the story collection, 100 Apocalypses, and Other Apocalypses, another story collection called The Entire Predicament, and the novel Everyday Psycho Killers, A History for Girls. Lucy's work has appeared in a variety of publications, including Harper's Magazine, Plowshares, Tin House, and Bomb. She is the recipient of the Rome Prize and a literature uh, literature fellowship from the National Endowment for the Arts. She teaches at Cal Davis. So The Swank Hotel is, again, the title of her new novel, a very fascinating book. And as you'll hear me say in my conversation with Lucy, this is a wild book. It's a book that consistently surprised me on the page and felt like the product of a very live imagination in a way that distinguishes it. You sort of have to read it to know. But the Swank Hotel, it has a lot on its mind. Let's put it that way. And 
it touches a lot of different nerves in terms of how we live now, what we've lived through over the past 20 years. As Americans, as citizens of the world, and it's just really, uh, you know, it's the product of a very intelligent writer and somebody who is really great on the sentence level as well. So very pleased to talk with Lucy Corin and very pleased to feature the Swank Hotel as this month's book club pick. So otherwise, uh, some of you have been writing to me asking for updates on my publication process. And I think that's not a bad idea for me to talk about the process as I go through it. A little bit, at least. I think I may have mentioned that the book now has a cover. It is not public yet, but the the cover design process is done. And what's funny is that, uh, you know, my, my editor at IG Publishing, Robert Lasner, he asked me for my thoughts on the cover. And like the way that I'm wired, like somebody asks me something like that, I am going to really think about it. And, you know, I say this while also having to acknowledge that I am not a designer. I don't have that gift. I don't have like a very strong visual art gift. And so, you know, I went into the process wanting to be thorough but also like aware of my deficits in this department. And I put together like an 11 page document <laughs> with all these different uh, book covers and visual motifs. And I mean, just, I just tried to be thorough. I was trying to think of the actual person who would be doing the book design and just kind of putting ideas on the page that they could potentially use or not. And I sent this to Robert and he emailed back and was like, this is the longest document (laughs) that uh, I've ever received in my multi-decade history as an editor of books, like the longest document of this kind. And uh, I was like, well, you know, get to know me. (laughs) You asked me, I, uh, you know, I have a certain uh, energy, I guess. I don't know. But ultimately, I just said, you know, look, I'm not a designer. I'm perfectly happy to let whoever is doing the book cover design do the book cover. And uh, lo and behold, this person came up with uh, a number of options, and we settled on one that I like very much. It is, how can I, uh, I'll give you some hints. It's minimalist, I will say that. It's it's, uh, text-centric, because I have a long title. You know, the title of my novel is Be Brief and Tell Them Everything. So, you know, it's lengthy and you sort of have to make room for the words on the cover. And I'm sure there's some precedent for a book cover like mine, but it doesn't look like a lot of the books that I see, which I appreciate. There's something sort of spare and understated about it, but it also speaks well to, I think, the contents of the book, which is what you want as an author. So I'll be excited to share that with you soon. Otherwise, at this stage of the game, I'm obsessively reading the book, scrubbing it of uh, any mistakes or perceived mistakes, trying to fix it up a little bit. 
waiting for um, you know my official editorial feedback and just kind of getting it ready for publication. I've also had to do uh, blurb solicitation, which is kind of like a necessary evil in the book publication process where you go out and you ask other authors for blurbs. I have been uh, fortunate in this department to get some nice uh, blurbs for the book. And, you know, it's an embarrassing process. It's a it's an awful thing to have to ask somebody because it takes time, you know, to read a book and offer feedback. And then some people say no, which at first, like, you know, you sort of wince. You go, oh. But then they explain. Usually it's the people who get asked all the time who are just like, you know what, I can't. And uh, I understand that. Like, you know, there's the initial wince, and then you think about it for about 30 seconds, and you go, oh, yeah. They're just being honest. Like, there's only so much you can do. But uh, that said, you know, uh, some people have come through. That's all you really need. And uh, then we're getting ready for, you know, editorial, copy editing, galleys, all that kind of stuff. I'm trying to amass a list of, uh, you know, people to send the book to. Many of you probably know this if you've published a book before, but some of you may not. So I hope it's okay to be transparent about this stuff. I feel like there's some listeners of this program who might like to know. And, you know, I'm trying to find like uh, literary podcasters, literary critics, book bloggers, and so on to uh, send galleys to, to try to get the book reviewed and covered. Some of that falls on the author. Some of it I've just taken upon myself because I know how much work it is. And you have to sort of advocate for your book, right? You spend all this time writing the thing. You have to go out and fight for it a little bit. So, you know, if you're out there and uh, you're a book reviewer or a blogger or somebody like that and you want to... uh, get a galley, just email me at letters at otherppl.com. I think that's it. I think that's where things are right now. It's going to be a book in May of 2022. So uh, get ready. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, this is Brad Listy, the host of the Other People Podcast. If you're anything like me, you sometimes struggle to find the right book. Has this ever happened to you? You go to the bookstore, you wander around, you look at a million books, you walk out of the store empty-handed because you couldn't figure it out. You were overwhelmed. The same thing can happen with the, uh, audiobooks. It can happen with podcasts. You know, it's just like a lot of work trying to figure out what you need. But when it comes to reading, I have some good news for you. There's a service called Scribd that makes it all better. With Scribd, you get instant access to millions of ebooks, audiobooks, magazines, and more. You also get thoughtfully curated editor's picks and smart recommendations based on what you've already read, which makes choosing your next book that much simpler. I love Scribd. It has streamlined my reading life. It's all right there in one place. It's more efficient. It's more fun. It's more effective. I find things I didn't even know I wanted. It's right there in front of me. With Scribd, you have the world's most fascinating library at your fingertips, all for just $9.99 a month. That's less than the cost of a book. And you get millions of ebooks, audiobooks, magazines, all right there. It's incredible. It could not be simpler. No complicated credits or additional purchases involved. Automated suggestions, hand curated picks. You can easily switch between title genres and formats right there from the app. And you can discover must-read new work from celebrated authors like Roxanne Gay, Charles Yu, and more, premiering exclusively on Scribd. Best of all, right now, listeners of the Other People podcast can get a free 60-day trial for Scribd. A 60-day trial for free. Just go to try.scribd.com slash OPL and get that free trial. That's try dot s c r i b d dot com slash o p l and get sixty days of scribd for free. All right, go do it and get reading. My guest again is Lucy Corin. Her new novel, The Swank Hotel, is the official October pick of the TNB Book Club, and it was great to meet her. Really fascinating novel and a fascinating conversation with a very gifted writer. The Swank Hotel is out right now from Grey Wolf Press. Here she is, ladies and gentlemen. This is my conversation with Lucy Corin. The origin story is probably one of the most... There's a lot of ways that I could squirrel out of the question, but... The origin story, the real one is very, um, it's an intimate story and I'll, I'll tell it in part because I feel okay telling it because, um, it's contained in the book and it's contained in the book in the way that is presented as the origin story. (laughs) Like one of the wild things in the book is that there's a chapter in the book that's written by my real life sister. She's a brilliant writer. She's a wonderful artist. 
I love her enormously. She's a complicated person. I'm kind of complicated. Um, You don't know that yet, but I am. But she had an experience where she came very close to dying and she didn't. And, um, and that threw me for, you know, I don't know, like it changed, it changed my life. Um, it changed my life to be in the presence of that. And, um, and so, uh, the book was, um, you know, came out of me thinking more or less consciously, like if our baseline narrative, right? So I'm a fiction writer. I've been a fiction writer. That's who I've been since I had an identity for myself. My identity was as a fiction writer. So, you know, something, anything happens in the day, I see someone do something silly at the grocery store and it filters through my fiction mind. It filtered, I ask myself, um, what does that have to do with fiction? You know, (laughs) the way that that person did that with that carton of milk. Um, And so when this enormous thing happened in my life, I, I found myself asking, what does this mean for narrative? Like, if my whole narrative of the world and how things go is that people are born and then they live and then they die, and then I have something that disrupts that very core basic expectation, what does that mean to everything else that I take for granted about everything from the way people should imagine their own sexualities to the way that people should imagine, you know, going through their life, having a, a, trying to get a decent job and buying a house and being a decent citizen. And, you know, I mean, that seems like a very big leap immediately, right? Because the core thing is the human beings that this stuff is happening to and the trauma around it. So, but I knew it was connected. And so I spent the next, you know, 10 years of my life trying to write into those confusions and those relationships and those connections that had sort of, um, I mean, I don't think shattered is the right word. It's a little dramatic. It was, it's, it's dramatic, but shattered is still sort of too sharp a word, I think. Like destabilizing. Um, It destabilized my sense of, um, of how I viewed the world and how I thought other, how I thought that I was viewing things in relation to the people around me, a sense of uncertainty about um, the assumptions I made about what other people thought or the way that other people proceeded through their lives. And so that's where the writing came, came from was just trying to, I guess, uh, write through and towards and within that instability Okay. So you talked about your sister, um, having a near death experience, which is depicted in the book as well. Your book is about, among other things, two sisters named, uh, M and Ad, (laughs) uh, Emily and Adeline, Adeline. Yeah. And, uh, and Adeline has, uh, a near death experience, suffers from mental illness is not neurotypical. Stop me if I'm mischaracterizing anything. Well, I appreciate that you know that those are complicated words that go in and out of feeling right to people. So I think it's great to stumble around those words. I think it's only appropriate. Yeah. So, you know, that's that's the heart of your book, I would I would posit. 
And, you know, you talked about how in your own life, your sister's um, brush with death, like kind of totally reordered your existence. Yeah. And reoriented you in terms of like your expectations. You mentioned like, you know, people are born, they live and then they die. But, you know, if, you're t if your sister had a brush with death, it was like, well, she was born, she lived and then she died, but it was out of chronology. I think what you were implying, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, is that, you know, we have this sort of assumption that you're born, you live 75 to 90 or 75 to 100 years, and then you die. So was it the, was it the, the sort of out of timeness of it that disrupted you so much in terms of like your expectation of how your life was going to go and how her life was going to go? Is that what you meant? Well, but I also meant that it's not just that, you know, you don't expect to encounter something like that when you're young, right? But when you're like a, a young thriving adult or something like that, it's it's also about like that seeming like a closed system, you know, like that, because, you know, you, the experience of it was from my perspective, which is what I try to focus on instead of trying to pretend to be able to represent other people's experiences. The experience of it was like he, being told that she was dead and then having that experience of having a dead sister for a weekend for days and then being told, oh, no, not dead. And so it's that undoing of something that seems like it couldn't possibly be undone. Right. It's right. It's that rupture of 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 like a very core expectation of, yeah, the way things go. Yeah. That actually happened in some form to me when I was a kid, when my grandfather passed away. Uh, like there was some confusion over the phone. That was the way we received the news that he was, you know, gravely ill. And he did wind up dying, you know, about a month after. But the news came in and I remember my dad being like, you know, he's died. And then we were like, oh my God, he died. And then, you know, I don't even, I don't know how much time passed, but it was probably like an hour later. It was like, actually, no, he's not dead. <laughs> and it was, I remember being like, well, geez, you know, like we need to, I need some accurate information here. It was really, I guess it can happen, but it's not the kind of thing that would seem to have wiggle room, but sometimes it does, you know? Yeah, sometimes it does. And there's something that like, that could have been something that you latched onto. You know, it could have been something that like, like for me, I had this, I had a profound sense of being violated by experts, <laughs> you know, and being like lied to by the, the, the greatest authorities around these medical people. And, and it's not like a doctor called me. I mean, it was much more, you know, it was like, you know, somebody told somebody who told somebody who said, you better call her sister. You know, I know that this is not a, an experience that's unique to me. Right. But the the what happened when I experienced it is that it triggered something in me that changed the way that I was looking at every other thing in the world. And I was looking at every other thing in the world like, well, that's not necessarily the case. Well, what if it's not that it may seem like that? But what if it's not? I know they say it is right. And this starts to have real resonances for me when like, you know, we're starting to have cultural conversations that are like, maybe racism isn't a bad thing. 
right? <laughs> where like, or like these astonishing like conversations that I never thought were going to be conversations again. And they are like things that I just bottom lined line, like assumed, like, we all agree that this is how it goes, right? And when I see that, ha it's it. So it resonated with me on a an, in a larger way than in my personal experience or in my family's history. And so I tried in the book to trace those things, those, yeah, those resonances that move across tales from my family history, things that either happened in my family or that happened in some version that I didn't write exactly the way it happened in my family, things I made up that could have happened to people that were sort of like us, things that happened to people that I imagined if if they were in that situation in in that same landscape that I was building around this half true, half imaginary, half rumor, you know, based on rumor kind of story world for this book. I tried to just include everything. You know, I would just, I would hear something and it would seem like it had something to do with the problem I was working on in the book. And I would just bring it into the book and see what work it did and try to tell its story and try to just trace through the connections, hmm. push them as far as they could to make it as expansive a book as I could make it. That was the aim. As I was saying uh, at the top of our conversation, there's a wildness to this book that is unique, uh, like an imaginative wildness, a linguistic like wildness. Like it's a very beautifully written book at the sentence level. It's also, you know, it's grappling with a lot. And you talked a, a second ago about how your experience with your sister where, you know, it was like well, someone told you she had died and then it was like, well, actually she didn't die kind of um, challenged all of your assumptions about reality. Yeah. And I think that's a very astute observation that the times that we're living in now parallel that experience in a lot of ways because, you know, everybody sort of has their own version of reality. And we live in this, this era where it's very hard for large groups of human beings to agree upon sets of facts. <laughs> you know what I do? You know what I'm getting at? Like, it just feels like everything's sort of up for grabs in a way that isn't necessarily always positive. Like, I'm generally open to the idea that like, well, we don't know very much. Like, let's not assume we have a firm handle on just about anything. But like you said, like, racism is bad. You know, <laughs> like, um, that, that one seems pretty locked up for me in my mind. Like, you know, and I think that maybe sometimes things th these things can get out of hand or it can become unwieldy and uh, i suppose the question i would posit to you is like do you feel that at some point it became unhelpful this like destabilizing feeling this challenging of all of your assumptions like like how do you view it in retrospect or maybe you're still inside of it to some degree but do you know what i'm saying like how do you assess it in terms of its impact on your day-to-day -day life i mean i think it's true that i in braced like living in it as a real layer of reality like a real layer of the truth of my of my experience and I, I lived in it but you know I also held, had a job you know and you have to sort of you have to find you have to find some level of stability in order to function in the world it's really hard though if 
you're taking your your if if I'm you know when I'm taking when I'm when I'm taking up this kind of territory in my fiction, and I'm taking it up seriously, and then I'm convincing myself to go to work in the morning and like be as kind as possible to my colleagues and my students, right? Like there's something that feels disjointed, like that says like, well, really, why am I doing this? And really, why am I, you know, why, why are, why are, why is anybody doing anything? Right? Like when you scrape it down to that. And so part of the process too, is finding those touchstones. Like there's a couple lines in the book that I sometimes think of them, think of as like moments where I touched ground in this like swirling ocean and one of them was like, I think it's pretty late in the book where there's one of these sort of meditations on something or other, who knows. But I think it ends with, but some of, but something like, but some of the things that we think are beautiful are beautiful, right? Or some of the things we think are true are true, right? Like it comes back to different moments like that. Some of the things that we, that we, some of the things that we have in our civilization are good, Right. right? <laughs> Some of them are like, it's hard to always know which one one is and it moves, right? That's it's a moving target finding a touchstone, which is, you know, kind of oxymoronic. If you think of the metaphor of a touchstone is supposed to be something that doesn't move, but I, but they they do move. And so I, th- I think that does still characterize what it's like for me to be moving through the world now. I think it felt good for a while. I felt a real sense of peace after finishing the book for a a hot minute, you know, for a hot minute, like after I like came to where I came to in the book, I felt a sense of like reordering and, and, um, and there was something about it that was like, like being able to sit with something that was in motion and not be afraid in it right but right. yeah that left <laughs> i was gonna say and then what happened <laughs> well, and then what happened is that like a new thing will explode on the internet and then a new thing will explode on the news and then like a new thing will happen um across the world in a way that i don't know how to comprehend or really understand or another entire species of animal will become extinct and <laughs> and um you know i mean we're in it we're we're in you know, we're in a time of motion and we want, I want very much like the things to hold on to. I don't think it's an accident that people in lots of different kinds of ways are trying to find spiritual practices or religious um, traditions that they can attach themselves to. You know, I don't think it's an accident that people want, you know, a, a, a leader that they can just attach themselves to and believe in and follow. Yeah, it's a scary time to be alive. Maybe uniquely scary, just in terms of the stakes. You know, with climate change, mm-hmm. nuclear proliferation, mm-hmm. the decimation of uh, the ecosystem. You know, economic insecurity. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, I guess economic insecurity has played out through the millennia, but I just think that climate change and nuclear proliferation make things like extra existential, <laughs> right? Oh my God. I mean, I think that, you know, my last book was called a hundred apocalypses and other apocalypses. <laughs> that was a, that was a lot more like, I was a lot more at ease talking about that book when I talked to, you know, this is a hard book for me to talk about. I don't know how to talk about it yet. I'm just guessing. I don't have a way to do it, but that book was kind of 
easy to talk about because everybody has an apocalyptic fantasy that they kind of want to trot out and you know and I could instantly sort of well I had a little packet of um, stickers little stamps that I would use for people's books and they would have like when there was a syringe and like a flood icon and like a house burning down and you know I'd be like pick your apocalypse and people could pick one and stamp it in the book. This gave me great pleasure. But it, <laughs> the reason I bring it up is because of you saying, like, you know, for you, like, right now, it's really, like, climate change and nuclear proliferation that are really, like, you know, um, I guess maybe in our terms so far, like, destabilizing you or, like, but but people, people can freaking pick, you know? <laughs> like, pe- people, you know, people, you wake up one, there's always, there's, there's something for everybody to to let destroy them every day (laughs) right now well and you talk about the pandemic and uh you know that adds a layer too and uh you know i guess you didn't talk about the pandemic yet unless i'm misremembering but you talked about the ways in which you know your sister situation and you know having this feeling of being misled by experts by medical experts kind of set you off. Mm. And, you know, I have a child with a complicated um, medical situation. And I have had this conversation in recent months or like, you know, over the course of the pandemic with friends of mine who have been bemoaning like the incompetence of the CDC and the, you know, the way the goalposts are always moving and all this stuff. And I'm like, you know, this doesn't throw me as much because of what I've been through with my son. You know, once you realize that doctors are humans <laughs> mm-hmm. and that in a fluid situation where they don't have all the answers, yeah, you're going to be subject to moving goalposts and sudden shifts, and you're going to have to deal with the fact that they may be wrong about things. Yeah. Um, and I know from experience how destabilizing that can be. It's like almost like... The way that I kind of jokingly refer to it is it's like, it's almost like finding out when you're a kid that like Santa Claus is your parents. You're like, wait a minute, like the doctors don't know everything. They don't have answers. Like that's a, that can really fuck with your head. Yeah. Yeah. uh, Yeah. Um, And there, the other strand that I see in the culture right now that I think is in relation to that is how much people want to be, um, perfect and perfect, perfectly ethical people who don't, um, make mistakes. People don't offend each other. People who know themselves, people, you know, people want to have a lot of self-knowledge and show themselves as being self-knowledgeable. They want to move through the world feeling like they didn't screw up. And I think that that's directly related to how much is screwed up. And I think that the experience that you have with your child and with the reality of how much we don't know and how much people can, like an institution, like the medical institution can have so many resources and so many brilliant people working on it with all of their hearts and um, still not be able to do, make things right or or know what to do. Yeah. Or it, give, give you the right information in the moment, you know, like sometimes the information changes or the, I just remember yeah. like a doctor, like I remember looking at my uh, son's pediatrician 
at one point and just being like, God, this is so screwed up. Like, I can't get the answer. And she's like, she looked at me and she's like, this is medicine. Mm. And I was like, oh, yeah. Like, you're trying to, like, like, suss out the diagnoses and figure out treatment plans and options and all this kind of stuff. And she was like, yeah, like, this is it. It's like a little bit of trial and error and testing and figuring it out as you go. Like, I, I, I never saw it that way because I'd never been in a situation where somebody this close to me was in a health situation like that. But anybody who's had a gravely ill, you know, uh, family member and has had to be, you know, in close contact with them as they try to navigate it, I'm sure has been able to bear the fluctuations in the medical community around COVID, I would, I would guess, better than people who might not have experience with that. Uh, that's just me guessing, but it seems logical. So how do you live with that instability? Like, what do you, what do you do with the instability of both like going to the experts and knowing that, that they don't have answers. What they have is like ways to try to figure something out. Uh, I think a lot of it, it's like hard acceptance, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, um, it's like a, it's a lonely place. You know, you just go, oh, like shit. Like I got to accept the instability. And the truth is that all of reality is unstable. You know, everything's impermanent. Everything's always in flux. Nothing is super fixed or fixed at all. But I think with, you know, specifically with regard to medical stuff and thinking about the future, it's part acceptance. And then part of it is shrinking things down and trying to take things day by day or moment by moment. Uh, You know, when I start to spiral and think about like 20 years from now or what happens after I'm gone, I mean, you do have to do some of that kind of long-term thinking just as a parent, you know, but too much of that can cause trouble, I find. And so Mm -hmm. I just try to focus on today and like what's good and accept as much as I can. I don't know how else to do it and stay um, sane. You know, you can drive yourself nuts. Mm-hmm. So yeah, for, that's my strategy for now. <laughs> for sure. And I think a lot of the characters in my book do some version of, you know, if not driving themselves nuts, then just like taking very seriously the parts of them that are um, destabilized and following them, seeing, following them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you talked about people seeking out spiritual stuff. I've been doing this my whole life. I don't know how true it is. Like, I wonder, like, do you think people are like moving in that direction more in the, in recent years because of like all the unrest politically and with the pandemic and. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm wary of making sweeping statements about anything because I'm always aware of how tiny my, the little sliver of view view that I have of things. I feel like I have no perspective on, on what's going on in a large scale. Um, I have these like little bits of things that float my way and I have a sort of sense of things that I can't really put my finger on. And so I try not to say anything to, I don't know. I, Big religion is entering our political life in a big way. In the university, I think people are trying to ask why religion has been so relegated to people's personal lives and less so to their intellectual lives and their scholarly lives. 
why there's been like these divisions. I think that people are trying to, and I think that um, people who, if of a lot of people, I think of my generation, although again, I, I don't want, maybe it's just my friend group, but like I see a lot of people who grew up with really bad experiences in religion, um, trying to reclaim something for themselves that is, that is, that is nurturing and fulfilling and meaningful and powerful. Um, people who have been raised in religious traditions that are stigmatized are trying to be public about them and, you know, open about them and uh, righteous in them. What do you mean about religious? Do you mean the traditions themselves have been stigmatized? Sure, sure. Yeah. You know, like I, I know a, a wonderful writer who grew up in a, a, a voodoo tradition and she's bringing the some of the practices of that tradition into her writing and teaching and i don't know if that's something that would have happened a generation ago yeah you know, there's pe people trying to find corners of their life to do the kind of big thinking that they thought was either served up to them in a in a in a in a way that was you know brutal sometimes or um or cruel or uh, and and find 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 a way to ask ask those questions and have those physical lived experiences that take you outside of your daily life and give you a sense of I don't know I don't have a great I don't have a practice of my own so I can't really articulate it you know what it would be for for people um, but were you, I, were you raised in a religion you know I ha I was raised by a Catholic who married a Jew, both of wh whom by the time they met were adamant atheists. And they were like, they were like both really clear about what they saw in the history of their religions as immoral and as brutal and as a, a force of bad in the world. And they didn't want, and they, their, their sense of raising their their kids me and my sister as moral creatures was that you had to really think hard about morality and not just take that from some authority because those authorities had problems sure. um at the same time like i have a lot of um i i i recognize all the time the way that the patterns of of catholicism that my mother grew up with were passed down to me and the patterns of Judaism that my, my father was raised much more, you know, uh, secularly than my mother was. My mother went to Catholic school and had a horrible experience. And my father was in the part of his Jewish family where, I mean, they're very Jewish, you know, you walk, these are Jews, but his particular family group wasn't Orthodox and they weren't particularly intense about the intellectual part of that religion. You know, my grandfather was a great golfer, you know, that kind. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, yeah, so, but I, I, like so, to, I like to hear you say yeah. that. I like to hear you say that even though your parents were about atheists, that certain patterns inevitably found their way into you. Here's the other thing I'll say is that there's something that's very lonely about the picking and choosing the parts of things that work for you path. And one of the things that I long for and I think has almost has always been missing that organized religion tries to do is create community, right? Create, you know, and like, there really is nothing like I was reading a 
sort of cultural critic that I follow on Instagram was describing going into the move into the movie theater for the first time. And she really articulated beautifully what it meant to just be in a room with other people watching a movie where you couldn't just like, you know, put it on pause to go get a drink or whatever that you could like, like there, there was something about the structure of going to the entering the movie theater, sitting down, watching the whole darn movie at once, and then having the feelings at the same time, and then getting up and leaving. There's something about that that I have, I do think has always been missing in my life. A sense of going to with a shared purpose with a group of people that you kind of maybe know, some of them you know, some of them you don't. And you're doing something together and you're going to have different feelings and thoughts about it, but you're doing, but doing something together with a shared agreed purpose. Yeah. Seems um, beautiful and rare. I mean, rare in my life and I think rare in a lot of people's lives and certainly exacerbated by by COVID. Yeah, no doubt. I feel the same way. I like have a lot of like grief over the loss of the movie theater experience, not only with regard to COVID, but just with regard to the rise of the streamers and cell phones and all that, or, you know, smartphones and all that kind of stuff. And it's like a shared dream, you know, you enter a dark room together and you basically experience the same dream at the same, you know, the same time. And, uh, there's something lovely about that, like that, especially when you see like a funny movie and everyone's laughing at the same time or a horror movie and everyone's screaming at the same time, like, that's, mm-hmm. ir- that's irreplaceable. And mm-hmm. I've had this conversation on this show recently where I'm like, like pounding the table saying like, listen, streamers are not better. Like <laughs> it's, I mean, it's fine for them to exist, but if we lose the movie theater experience, that sucks. That's a big loss and like a real loss. And I don't, I know I sound old probably saying that, but I just, I hate this idea that just because a change is happening, it's necessarily a good thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I think what's I would miss I would I want them I want the movie theaters to survive, believe me. But I also think that the larger point that we're like working around is places in the culture where you get together in groups and it's it's good. Right. Right. <laughs> right? <laughs> like it, it's it's um like the the a, a sense of positive collectivity or shared purpose or um it, that isn't um there are so many places of getting together out of out of anger or getting together out of necessity fear or out of fear right that like finding ways for people to get together out of like a a, a shared a shared in it's it's not like a it's not like they all agree on the goal but it's like they're they're together in an effort or something I think that's why live music is so great. Like going to a concert and like yeah. the, the like the emotional charge that you get from a good live music experience, that sort of collective energy, that's that's a good thing that we need. You know, it's coming back, but we need more of that, or at least I need more of that. And I, I think that what I appreciate about your novel and the story that you're telling um, is that I think it's a it, like it's a good time. Uh, it's never not a good time, but I think it's a it's necessary in the times that we're living in now for as many people as possible to reassess how we exist, um, to challenge assumptions. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's amazing when you're going through your day-to-day life and you're not dealing with any kind of calamity or any kind of 
upset or any kind of like real like in your face existential challenge how easy it can be to sort of just float right through and also to get caught up in the static you know to get caught up in like office politics mm -hmm. or to get caught up in the the neurotic worries that you have about something that's really in the grand scheme of things tiny i mean everything's tiny but you know what i mean and then suddenly there's a you know a mortal threat like you get a diagnosis yourself or somebody you love is you know uh, on death's door and all of a sudden everything gets flipped and I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Well, I was thinking that, um, you know, that's what literature's for. I agree. Or at least some literature, right? Mm -hmm. the, you know, what I, what the literature I go to, like, it's for that. It's for, it's for everything from, from flipping the script to taking you out of the petty. Who are some, do you have some authors who are like, you know, obviously we all do, but are there authors for this book in particular that you were looking to as kind of touchstones or, uh, who were like kind of lighting the way for you? I mean, early in the writing of the book, it was, uh, it was, uh, hunger that hence, hum, Knut, Knut Humpson, I can never say his name without just stumbling in order to show how anxious I am about saying his name. <laughs> Hampson book called Hunger and uh, Mrs. Dalloway, you know, the way that she works with that character uh, with Septimus. And, and um, you know, recently I'm just sort of looking at like the books that are sitting on my shelf right now and thinking about how this, you know, this book, like for me, it, you know, it, I, I guess every writer experiences this when they do any publicity. It's just a little you know, new for me. But you you write the book and you have a and you come to an ending of a relationship of the book and then you sort of see it in the world and have to have re have a re relationship with the book and especially if the book is in any way attached to your life the things in your life don't end just because you know you finished writing a book about those aspects of <laughs> of your life you right. know it doesn't it doesn't really end so like if I say the the books that I've read recently that tap back into this material for me in a way that keeps that keeps me um, attached to the pulse like this, this book, it, it doesn't seem directly related at all, but it is for me the this book Maud Martha by Gwendolyn Brooks. It's this novel. Uh, it's a novel of daily life um, in a in a in a really quiet way, also a novel of an entire time, an entire era, an entire way of being in the world for us for a family. I can't believe that it is out of print, but I, but I believe it's out of print. I just, I wanted to teach it this year and I can't figure out how to get copies for students. And the other thing that I was reading, I read half of this book yesterday, is this Hervé Gilbert, another name that I stumble over on purpose just to not pretend to be able to speak other languages, but Hervé Gilbert's um, Crazy for Vincent. It's an intense barrage of like passionate, messed up people shoving their way towards each other and away from each other and it also is really brilliantly complex in the way that it refuses to be fiction or non-fiction and so those are my examples right now okay no those i mean that's as that's that's as much as i was hoping for and uh it's interesting too like the stuff that you were saying about your relationship with your book like you write it and it's like you're in this kind of uh 
you know, trance state. That's certainly, I mean, maybe to an, a unique degree, I felt that way reading your book. Like mm -hmm. there's a trance-like quality to the prose or to the delivery. That's great to hear. Um, was that how it felt writing it? It, it's how it felt when I was um, when I was in it, you know, like it took you know, it took so long that like you can't you, there were periods of time when I was in it and I did feel like I was in a trance for time, like a long period of time. And then there were periods of time when I was just out like doing the rest of my life and then getting back into it, getting back into the texture and the mindset and the 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 community of voices in the in the book was often arduous and then I and then being in it was kind of amazing yeah you know to like just be able to be in there and to be in tune with the in tune in tune with the world through the way that I was working with language in that book was really like my favorite experience possibly ever oh wow yeah I mean it felt yeah. it felt like a really like there's a maximalism happening, mm -hmm. which yeah. I appreciate because I'm speaking personally, but sometimes or, or oftentimes I can forget like how wide open the possibilities are right? as a fiction writer. You right. know what I'm saying? It's like, it's like this, I'm like in this narrow channel. I'm like, well, wait a minute. Yeah. Hey, there's no rules here. Like be mm -hmm. like, like, you know, look around, mm -hmm. grab stuff. Yeah. think, you know, like, like, let your mind go a little bit, let the story yeah. go a little bit, I, I can yeah. hold on too tightly or something. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a liberating quality to reading it in that way. And it's really a stimulating book, like it had me thinking about so much, because mm -hmm. it's thinking about so much. Um, but I also relate to this notion of like writing the thing being in this trance. I guess you went in and out of it over the period of a decade, you said it took you a decade to write it. Mm -hmm. Um and then like coming out of it and I'm kind of going through this right now. I just finished a book that took me a decade and I'm very excited that it's going to be a book. And then I'm also like, oh, like, what did I do? <laughs> like, having all these different moods about it and you know, wondering if that's normal, like, please tell me that's normal. And, um, I can't tell you what's normal. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> or at least that you have a similar experience. Like where yeah. it's just like, it's just weird that suddenly it becomes this thing and it's, uh, it, you know, it's its own entity. And you talk too about not knowing how to talk about this book. Mm -hmm. I've been having those thoughts as well. Like it's weird to write a book and to be that deeply invested in a project for that long. And then mm -hmm. to be like, not really sure what to say about it. <laughs> no, know? I wrote it all. I wrote it down. I wrote down what I had to say about it, and then I published it in the form of a book. <laughs> yeah, right. Make of it what you will. Um, but I think too, like you know, speaking for myself, like there's some because the book that I wrote is is like yours, like very personal and based on some tough stuff, you know, in my personal life. Uh, I find myself like wondering, like, oh God, you know, like is it too much self exposure, and then what will I say about it? Like, what if I say something stupid? Like, that's, I guess that's always my fear. Um, you know, so I relate to that, like not knowing how to talk about it. Um, you just have to muddle through, I guess, do the best you can. Yeah. And, and I have to tell myself that I'm not, I'm not ever going to think that I did it right. I'm just going to have done what I did. Yeah. You got to just let it go. 
try your best to be candid and then just let it go. Yeah. So when you were writing this book over 10 years, it sounded like, you you know, there were like fallow periods, like long fallow periods where you weren't writing oh, at all. Yeah. You know, it, fallow period for me is going to work. That's, that's all. So, and anytime, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I have to, I have a job, I have to make a living, I have to go. And in order to do that, I have to like push away all of the world of the book. I have to push it away. So I wouldn't call it fallow, right? Like it wouldn't have been fallow if I didn't have to go to work. Right, right. <laughs> you know I mean? Well, no, that's, but that's, a, that's an important distinction yeah. because I think sometimes yeah. people, um, you know, there is a fallow, like a genuine, like, you know, you're in a rut and then you come out of the rut or you're, mm -hmm. you're lost and then you're found. But for you, yeah. it's like it would have been faster if you just didn't have to go do the day job. Sure, yeah. But I also have to express my gratitude for having a day job that allows me to do things like, you know, write all summer and get a, get a grant and take take the grant and then come back to my job, which is waiting for me, you know. So, like, I'll do that work. Sure. It's not bad work either. It's work to be grateful for. So That's, you're a teacher mm -hmm. at uh, what Cal Davis? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. great. I mean, like in terms of jobs that are, I think. It's, um, it's, it's the, it's the gig, right? It's the one, it's the one that is closest to being there for, to help people make stuff. Right. It's the closest. It's the closest we got that I've heard of. Yeah. I, yeah. I agree. I agree. And I think too, sometimes time pressure can be good. You know, having too much time can sometimes be a bad thing. You know, maybe that tension, who knows exactly how to measure it, but maybe that tension produced certain things in the work, you know, like the compressed the compressed availability of time for your creative work in the summers, mm -hmm. it certainly has an effect on what ends up on the page, right? I mean, some way. Sure. Well, the reason that the book before this is made out of microfictions is because it was a very intense time in my working life, and I tried to write a story every Saturday. Hmm. Well, there you go. Right? Yeah. So I created a form to fit with my schedule. It also makes you salivate for it, right? It makes you just long, long, long for that time that you get with the page. And then when you get there, it, it comes with you feeling delighted to be there. Yeah. Like, whoa, look where I get to be right here. Instead of that terrible cliche of the writer, like, banging their head against the white page, you know? Like, no, <laughs> it's it's a gift. Look at this. You look what you get to do. You get to make something. Yeah, you exactly. Get to make anything you want. Right. I don't think I, I think I bitch about a lot of things, right? And I think I bitch about the world, and I think I bitch about like the state of literature, and I think I bitch about like literature, like nobody caring enough, and nobody reading well enough, and nobody reading what I think they should be reading, and when they do, not reading it the way I wanted them to. <laughs> like I'll bitch right. about all kinds of things, but I don't think I, but I don't bitch about writing. Yeah. Just, I'm just grateful to do it. I lately I've been really upset about the fact that uh like these really 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 good books in my view are not like finding proper mm -hmm. homes or finding like proper celebration. Like it's blowing my mind. Like it, yeah. there's so many good books out there on yeah. the margins and it's yeah. it's like how can the business of of books yeah. Be missing, like swinging and missing on books that are this good. Maybe there's just, it's just an, a case of not enough room at the end or something, but it's like, man, 
Yeah. I cannot believe that New York publishers are not like gobbling up some of these books that I'm reading. It's crazy yeah. to me. Yeah. Um, that's great to hear because, um, because, uh, you're in a position where you get to hold them up to the light. Yeah. I mean that, yeah, that's the, yeah. that's the, that's the, the bright side of it, you know, and I'm yeah. definitely going to be banging the drum for them, but it makes me want to like, I don't know. I want to like re I wish there could be like some sort of like diagnostic done, like a really intelligent diagnostic of the publishing industry where you really like somebody goes in and really like, how does it working and how is it not working? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, like what's going on? Uh, I just can't, it's so opaque to me. Um, maybe because I'm on in California and you know, far away from it or something, but, uh, I think it would probably be, be opaque even if I lived in Midtown, like what in the hell's going on? Like, how do these decisions get made? Well, I was an intern once in New York publishing. I mean, I can just tell you this tiny anecdote. I don't know much of an anecdote it is, but, um, but, I did. I did have a really great internship when I was in college at Viking Penguin, and got to work with a brilliant editor, and got to see. I got to see that stuff. I got to sit in on editorial meetings and have them like make the choices between the books they believed in and the books that they thought that were going to make money. And you know, I got to see how how much Stephen King sales paid for them to do other kinds of things. And, you know, I, it was, it was fascinating and it was amazing. And I knew immediately that I could never be in New York because it would totally, I could not, I don't, I didn't even think I could be a writer in New York, let alone like a person working in publishing in New York because it would tear me up too much. Wow. But I was really grateful to be able to have that little glimpse of what it was like in that one moment in time. Yeah. Where are you from? Are you from the East Coast or are you from? All right. So I was born in Chicago. My parents were in grad school. And so then we followed my dad to his first little teaching gigs. So I was, we moved to Arizona and then we moved to New Jersey and then we ended up in Western Massachusetts. And then we lived in a couple places in Western Massachusetts until I was 12. And then we moved to South Florida and then we moved to North Carolina and I was there in North Carolina for high school. And then I I went to college in North Carolina also. Oh wow! Yeah, almost like an army brat moving around. Yeah, but not 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 any not an army brat at all. An acad like, academic brat, like is that what they call? <laughs> well, I guess maybe no. I mean, my father also switched careers when when he was, um, you know, he 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 was a professor for ten years, but then he he left that profession, got training, moved on, to but what? he. He's now. Then he was. He was a doctor. He got a, an MD when he was 38. He got, went to a, a two-year program. I'll brag about my dad for a second. My dad like went to a two-year program to get his MD because he scored so well on his MCATs. Really? Yeah, and because he had had a PhD in a science field, and so they let him basically, like, they created a program that was much shorter so that he could sort of quickly get his MD. And so he went late, but he still had a full career before he retired. Wow. What kind yeah. of doctor, may I ask what kind of doctor he was? Or? Sure. He was an anesthesiologist. Wow. Mm -hmm. My cousin's an anesthesiologist. Mm -hmm. That's a wild thing to do. Mm -hmm. You know, like it. Totally. <laughs> like that's a lot of pressure. That's how I always oh think of it. God. I can't even imagine. <laughs> so you, but you were a literary 
like and like headed in this direction from an early age like i'm always I was a kid who was raised in a house full of books like just piles and piles and piles of books and in a family where you read everything nobody decides what's a children's book and what's not a children's book like you just everything is there for you um uh you know storytellers lots of like lots of uh reverence for the arts in my family yeah that's great yeah for sure uh, and you said at the very top of the show that you're complex and I was going to find <laughs> out about it. I, I feel like you feel, you seem like normal, you know, like within the normal range of complex to me. Like, I, I mean, we're all complex, but are there complexities right. to you that I have not um, become aware of that you, you can tell me about or is, did we oh, get? I, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you're, yeah, people are complex, but I didn't, I, I think that in that moment, I didn't want to separate myself out from like the idea of people who are complicated. Like I, you know, if, it, it's it's hard to call somebody to say that somebody else is complicated and also not call attention to the fact that you are too. Right, <laughs> right. That's a, that's appropriate. Yeah. Um, and then this book, uh, in terms of its road to publication, you know, it took you a decade to write it. Um, in terms of like having it find a home, was that a process? Did you have a relationship with Gray Wolf, um, you know, going into yeah. the, the sales process or were they expecting it or, you know what I'm saying? Like, how did that sure. part of it go? Well, you know, the book that I wrote before um, was published by McSweeney's, but it was edited by Ethan Nazowski. And Ethan Nazowski was um, at, at McSweeney's for a couple of years, but then he moved to Grey Wolf where he, he'd worked with them before and then he went back to Grey, to Grey Wolf. So he has a long-term relationship with that press, but I was with him working on that for that other book. And so when, when there was a draft of this book, that was, I knew I wanted to work with him again if he would have me. And so we sent it there and he took it on at a fairly early stage of its development. And, you know, I, I know these relationships are rare, rarer and rarer. They've been rare for a long time, but they're even rarer because of the pressures put on editors to do all kinds of other things other than work with their authors on their books. But Ethan put in, I can't even tell you how much time he spent with me working on this book. Hmm. I mean, it was, I, I was like, I've never had that kind of readerly attention. I've never had somebody inside a work with me the way that Ethan was inside this work with me for years. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. It was, it's, it's extraordinary. That's not something I hear often, mm -mm. you know, maybe it happens and they just, you know, we, we didn't get to it, but I haven't heard too many people talk about their editor, um, being that involved over a period of years. Yeah. Yeah. And helped you make market improvements to it. I would imagine. For sure. It's like, it went from being like, a lot of really cool sentences with some with with a sense of a story and i mean it it just went from having everything in it and to to like being clear <laughs> you know like it went from just being everything to being um a clear thing hmm. well that's a good place for us to end i know you got to get on with your day but i uh, i enjoyed reading it i'm glad we uh, are shot you know shining a light on it with the book club this month and um just great to talk to you great to meet you congratulations are you working on another book no <laughs> <laughs>
That's okay. <laughs> I, but I am imagining other books every day and I'm having writing time. You know, I go and sit with, um, I sit, I sit in a cafe with a writer friend and, and write and we'll see, but I'm not writing a, a particular thing. Yeah. Early stages, just beginning. Yeah. That's right. All right. Yeah. Well, it's a pleasure to talk with you. Same uh, here. Congrats yeah. once more and in, enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks so much. It was great to be here. All right. There you go. That was Lucy Corin. Great conversation. Her novel is called The Swank Hotel. Available now from Grey Wolf Press. The official October pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. You can find Lucy on the internet at lucycorin.com. You can follow her on Twitter. Her handle there is at Corin Fiction. One more time, the novel's called The Swank Hotel. Go get your copy right now. This podcast, The Other People Podcast, is offered freely every single episode, more than 700 and counting, are all available to you for free. It's a listener-supported show. If you like this show, if you listen regularly, if you get something from it, support it if you can. And you can do that for as little as $1 a month over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. There are different tiers, different levels of support. As you move up the scale, you can get prizes. A t-shirt, a tote bag, a sticker, a coffee mug, a book club subscription. I will write you a postcard by hand. I will wish you a happy birthday. So many options over at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. The Other People Podcast has a YouTube channel. Did you know that? The entire archive of this show is available on the Other People with Brad Listy YouTube channel. Go search for it by name, Other PPL, over at YouTube and subscribe. It's free. If you have something to say to me, the address uh, for email is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. The Other People app is also a thing. It too is free. Go get the app. And by the way, the app, uh, I went through some glitchiness for a few days. That's fixed or should be soon. All right? Okay. Okay.